I'll give a big advice. If you take some improv comedy lessons, it just transforms the way that you teach. So after I did that, my classes changed. I used to prepare for class. So I used to prepare for class, meaning that today I'm going to show you this, this, this. Here's how I'm going to do this problem. Here's how I'm going to do that problem. Since I'm prepared, I'll be able to teach the class. There will be no problems. I won't ever be worried that I got stuck, if that makes sense. Improv comedy teaches you how to just always be stuck and get your way out of it. We speak with Po Shen Lo, an American professor of mathematics at Carnegie Mellon University. He is also the national coach of the United States International Math Olympiad team. Po Shen shares how he believes, whether teaching in person or online, that we can never take the attention of students for granted. Yes. Yeah, so, John, the big question now people are wondering at home is, how do we craft engaging lessons that can keep the attention of our students when we're up against TikTok, Instagram, and that huge list of other modern day distractions. Be sure to stick around and dive into this conversation on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast with our guest today, Po Shen Lo. Let's go. Welcome to the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. We are from makingmathmoments.com. And together with you, the community of math moment makers worldwide who want to build and deliver math lessons that spark curiosity, fuel sense making, and ignite those teacher moves. John, today, we have the opportunity to dive into a conversation with Po Shen Lo, who has got a really awesome math story, not only from his own experience growing up, which has kind of trickled into how he's teaching in post-secondary. And something I'm really loving about this conversation we're going to get into today is that there's so many parallels to the things you and I talk about each and every week, right? Yeah, it's interesting to see how actually we've come at it from two different ends of the almost like the K to post-secondary spectrum in the sense that we modified our teaching plan. We called it in our past episodes, the real flip classroom, where we would take a problem and teach through a problem and have kids experience problem solving without you telling them how to do that. And we came at it from an end of constantly teaching students who hated math class, right? And who we always said, there's got to be a better way to help engage these students because it's like they come in just beaten down by math in the previous years. How can we help them see that math is more powerful than that and they like it? How can we change that? And we've had a lot of success from that. So we came at it from that perspective, whereas Po Shan Lo, from his own perspective, he's coming at it from like a con math contest side of things where he's like, I got to help kids learn how to problem solve, but we're coming at it from the, these really tough problems that we're diving into in almost like the extracurricular, the tough problems, the contest. And that's where he ended up coaching at the highest level you can for these problems. So we've come at it from two different sides of the spectrum. In, like you said, there's some really nice parallels here. So let's not waste any more time here talking about that. Let's hear Po Shen's side and his story. Awesome. Here we go, my friends. Hey, hey there, Po Shen. Thanks for joining us here on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We are recording 
on December 27th. John, we're kind of cutting it close because this episode is going to be coming out next week, I think. Yeah, we had an opening here. We're sliding Potion in. So Potion, welcome to the Make Math Moments That Matter podcast. How are you doing this evening? Oh, I'm terrific. Thank you so much. I would say that on this particular day, talking about mathematics now, even in the middle of winter break, is a refreshing thing to do. Awesome stuff. Yes, we want to know a little bit more about you for our audience, both John and I know of you and some of your work, but let everybody know where you coming to us from and give us a little bit of your math journey. What has helped lead you to what you're doing these days? Oh, I'm here from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's because I'm a math professor at Carnegie Mellon University. My math journey, though, has gone through a bunch of different twists, primarily because of math competitions. I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin. And when I was young, I did math in school. But then at some point in middle school, I found math competitions, which were questions that you don't know how to do and you haven't been prepared how to do. And I'd say that that has completely colored the way that I look at math, where even the way I teach it nowadays, it is all about I think it's more important to help people learn how to solve a new problem that they've never seen before, as opposed to just practicing methods and following them so you can do all the problems you have seen before. Totally. That actually falls just perfectly in line with what we have talked about so long here on the podcast about trying to teach perseverance, problem solving. And one way to do that, right, is just do what you just said. It's like you have to immerse kids into problems they don't know how to solve, and then you work through them together. I'm wondering a little bit of background before we kind of keep going here, Poshen. Like, I know that you had such a math contest, which was a huge influence on you. But I'm wondering if you could give us like a little backstory before that. I know that you said that it's a key aspect, but what do you say specifically like got you there? And then how did that get you where you are now? Well, when I was growing up, I did math in school and somehow I happened to know how to do a little bit more math than my classmates just because of the fact that my mother would teach me additional mathematics at home. So just because of that, I had some extra and it just meant that when there were more arithmetic problems, I could do more arithmetic problems. But I would say that the skills that I had gotten from that from that experience at home were primarily standard things. And so any textbook problem, I would be able to do textbook arithmetic problems. That's why it was so interesting when I landed in middle school and I suddenly saw some questions that involved algebra, but they looked different from all the algebra problems I'd ever done before. And I remember I thought I was good at math, right? And then suddenly, how can it be that there are these questions that I can't do? And how can it be that my mom, who taught me some of this stuff, also can't do some of these? I thought she was supposed to be super smart. And that's how I started to find out there's different kinds of questions in the world. Some are difficult because they're tedious. If you have 20 digit numbers multiplied together, I'm going to get it wrong, okay? There are just so many little things, I'll make a mistake. But that's not because it's cognitively hard. It's just tedious. Then there are other questions you look at and you say, I have no idea how to start this. And then suddenly you look at it from another angle and, oh my gosh, there's a way just to see it this way. And it's trivial. I love it. You know what? That's so interesting because I must say, I see a lot of similarities. John and I both had very, I would say, similar experiences when we were growing up with mathematics. We did a lot of what it sounds like you were doing at home and in most classrooms, right? Where, hey, we were able to do some of the, I'm going to say tedious, not 20 digit by 20 digit tedious, but very procedural things. You know, we were pre-taught how to do a lot of these problems. And where the wheels fell off for us was actually later on, like not 
not through competitions or through math challenges or things along those lines. But when the math actually got complex and we actually had to start understanding it and actually look at problems from different angles, that's where the wheels sort of fell off for us. So I see some alignment that we've sort of all three of us landed in this place to where we now value and respect the importance of not just procedurally memorizing everything. There's certain things that we need to learn and practice and do throughout the process, building that fluency and that flexibility. But that's more around, I think, more of the number sense piece. It's like the problem solving piece. That's where sometimes I feel like some of that more automaticity, we kind of suck that into problem solving where we want students to be able to automatically solve these problems as if they had seen them before. So that alignment, I think, is so great. And I'm wondering now, we ask a question to all of our guests. It's the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. We always ask our guests, what math moment pops into your mind when you think back? And I'm curious, is it that math contest sort of experience? Or do you have another memory? Like when you think of your math moment from when you were growing up and learning about mathematics, what was that to you? And how did that influence who you are now as a math educator? Hey, Math Moment Makers, Kyle here. And I've got just a quick message specifically for our district level mathematics decision makers out there. Do you feel like you're spinning your wheels when making district level goals for mathematics programming from kindergarten through grade 12? Setting new goals each year only to find little to no real shift in pedagogical practice or educator content knowledge across the district as a whole? Take a moment to book a short call with our team so we can learn more about your specific district and educator learning needs in mathematics so we can assist you in taking the first step of many in the right direction. Visit makemathmoments.com forward slash district to book a web call with our team today. We have a limited number of spots for districts just like yours, so don't wait head to makemathmoments.com forward slash district and grab a spot in our calendar now. Yeah, so I have a few of them. So one of them would be when I was younger in middle school doing these math contests. And there was just a particular question which I couldn't solve. It was actually a question I can describe. Suppose you have a circular table and you have it in the corner of a room. So it's actually touching the two walls. So you have the circle here, if that makes sense. And then apparently in this particular problem, there's this giant circular table. And then I'm doing top down, right? I'm looking top down. There's a circle here. There's the walls here looking top down. And there's another little cabinet or something, not cabinet. There's some rectangular thing. When you look from the top down, it's a rectangle. And that rectangle is squeezed into the corner. Again, you got the walls, got this corner. It's very visual. This, this is a geometry problem, right? You got this corner walls. This is top-down view. Everyone's visualizing it at home right now. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. You can't see the video if you're listening, so I'll it's just okay. describe it, right? I think you've described it great. Terrific. It's just like baseball. I don't know if that made sense, but like if you listen to baseball, I'm trying to be the baseball commentator and finding out how hard that is. But so you got this corner wall, right? You got this table. I'm looking top-down. There's a table down here. And then there's some kind of like a bedside table, a big rectangular block, if that makes sense. And that rectangular block is squeezed into that corner, but it also happens to just touch the corner of that rectangular block, just touches the edge of the circle. And you happen to know that the dimensions of this rectangular thing looking top down, I forgot what they are. Let's just say there are two numbers in the problem, those two numbers. And the question was, what's the radius of the circle? And when you look at this, 
it's actually not a standard problem at all. I remember there's a question. I couldn't solve this. I was in middle school. And I remember that even after trying it a bunch of times, I couldn't solve it. But at some point, I found out, oh, you can. And it used like, oh, wow, screenshot. Are you drawing it? Amazing. <laughs> oh, I'm trying. Kyle's drawing it. <laughs> yeah, for those watching on YouTube, we might as well see if the hey, baseball yeah, commentator <laughs> described it well. But keep going. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the point is that it turns out to be one of these problems where if you just try to go at it straight, you don't see what to do. But then somehow if you start introducing variables into a geometry problem. If you know what I mean, this is geometry and algebra at the same time, right? Oh, by the way, the, the table, as you're drawing it, the way that this should work, oh, are you drawing the walls right now? Is that what you're drawing? Yes. The walls, okay, right. Because the table is going to be squeezed into a corner. It's a really tiny, not table, the rectangular blocky thing. It's just like a tiny thing in the corner and you just happen to know the dimensions of that tiny thing. And then the question is, what's the radius of the circle? And it ends up being a problem where you have to use the Pythagorean theorem in some nifty way. But I just remember this because it's a kind of a question where you have to blend multiple areas of math at the same time. Exactly. You just do it. That's it. And it, actually, when I looked at it at the beginning, I didn't even know if I could do it because I've never seen anything like this before. Do you have enough information? And after a while, if you think about them as the problem as an adult, we can see that you have enough information because if you Im imagine going to Ikea and getting one of those right, like blockish things sticking into the corner, right? And then saying, now let me just go find another round table. Don't know if Ikea makes those. Everything Ikea makes is rectangular. But anyway, like find some round table. There will be a particular round table that will just fit. So there is an answer, if that makes sense. What I'm trying to say is there is definitely an answer to this problem because you could imagine just doing it by sticking the block and moving bigger and bigger tables. And at some point it's just right. But I just remember that question because it's an example of one of these problems that's not from the textbook. In retrospect, it's not that hard. I mean, I'm sure all of us could work it out now. But for a middle school me, it was really interesting. And obviously, I still remember it now. I love it. I can only imagine, or I, I don't even have to imagine. I know exactly what I would have done as a student. I would have said, you never taught me how to do this, right? And that's sort of that common response. And it's like, the more opportunities we give students to grapple and actually productively work through problems and to sort of experience that dopamine hit you get when you not even necessarily solving the entire thing, but to feel like you're making progress. And I think that's something I see it even with my own children these days with video games sort of give them that dopamine. And I feel like it's like they're missing out from some of these other experiences. And so we're big into Lego right now, because like, that's like our way to like, give them this opportunity to sort of work through something and sort of see it come to life. And Poshan, I'm curious on that moment and how that has influenced what you're doing now. Like, I know that you are the national coach for the USA International Mathematics Olympiads team. I think you've been doing that, what, since 2014. I'm curious how your experience with that problem or problems like that when you were young influences what you do with that team now. And I'm curious what that looks like. Yeah, I'm always curious about this. Like when you got into education, was this just something you did right from the beginning or was it something that you worked your way towards? Because I know, again, speaking for John and I, we taught the way that we were taught and it would have been more like what you were experiencing pre these math competitions that you were in. And it took us a while. Like, was that something that because of those experiences, did that set you up to kind of come right out of the gate doing things maybe differently? Or did you maybe get sucked into the 
I would say the norm that is K through 12 or K through, we'll call it post-secondary education. I think actually, because I came in from this math competition angle, it actually has colored the way that I both learned and taught math for my entire career. And that's because I actually learned math by doing these crazy problems, like the one I just showed you. You see, when I was doing these kinds of problems that were always a few steps ahead of my capability, I would end up having to invent my own ways to solve them. At which point later, when I went and learned those math classes in school, because I went to public school in Madison, Wisconsin, eventually I'd see those topics again. And I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember sort of figuring that out really badly on my own, because what's the chance that a kid could come up with the right way to do everything? You know what I mean? But like, it's sort of like, as if you never saw like a real car before, and you made a whole bunch of stuff, and I've got things on wheels that kind of go, but they fall apart after five minutes, right? That's like what I learned while I was doing this. But because I learned that way, I found out it's possible actually to learn a lot of math, where the student is the one doing the discovering, where actually the way I learned math was entirely different from the traditional that you're talking about because of the fact that I was always doing these challenge problems. So by the time I went to the class in school, I sort of had already been over that territory in a weird way. And then actually also when I was a high school student, I went back to help volunteer and coach the middle school team. So I was already explaining things in this way. When I was in college, I went to help to coach the high school students. And that's actually how I fell into this whole thing of becoming this national coach today. It's because I myself was on the national team for the United States in 1999. And then I just kind of stayed in the system, always keeping the next generation back, just the people about four years younger with this particular angle that I had picked up. How does the team look like now, maybe post mid COVID? How does all that look like? Give us kind of a run through for the listeners at home of what kind of the Olympia team does and what you do. Oh, sure. So it's the United States International Math Olympiad team. It's organized by the Mathematical Association of America, which you may have heard of. It's a big nonprofit organization that has been promoting all of this mathematics uh, for 100 years. But so what they do with me is that we are we find these students through some competitions, which actually hopefully everyone will have their students register in. These are called the AMC, American Math Competitions. They're for high school students and middle school students. And if you do well in these, you get picked into this team. But I should say the biggest difference, there's not a huge difference between COVID and before COVID because a lot of these students ended up learning a lot of things on their own anyway. The kind of math you have to do to be on this team is mostly extracurricular stuff that you pick up. The biggest difference is between the team today and the team when I was on it. When I was on it, even I could be on the team. Like <laughs> we weren't very smart. So back then there was no internet. You just were on the team if you kind of were a guy who was interested and could come up with ideas. Today, you actually have to be pretty smart to be on the team. I bet. And you think about as well, like if you're interested in that work, in that learning, that the internet is an endless pit. It could be of despair, but it could also be of very good things as well, right? Like if you're passionate about something, I always say the internet has exactly what you want if you know what you want to find. It's like, it's very useless when you're just sort of aimlessly searching around, right? So oh, I agree completely. I mean, I'd say that the internet is full of people who are trying to steal your attention because it's worth dollars to them. So there's actually an active role from various companies and various distractions on the internet trying to grab you in. But if you know what you want, you can go so far and pick up all kinds of information. And that's why a lot of the work I do nowadays is to try to build that up. 
I love that. And that's a great segue. That comment really segues to something we're really curious about because we know that a lot of the work you do, and I'm sure you do in-person learning as well, but you have a passion for online learning, for virtual learning. And we've heard that you talk about engagement. And for John and I, just to give you a little backstory, like John and I believe and our three-part framework we use in our K-12 through math classrooms are all about sparking curiosity and fueling sense-making. Like those are kind of the two things like we want to be doing. We don't just want to get their attention. We don't want to just steal their attention and then like make it gimmicky. We want to get their attention, much like your problem that you shared, where it's like it kind of sucks you in in a little way. Like it's like you sort of spark that curiosity, but then you're helping them to fuel sense making around some learning idea. And something we really liked about the work that you're doing is how important you believe and know engagement is in order to do online learning in an effective way. And It's even been said that you've got some ideas on how you might even be able to make learning mathematics online compete with like social media, like TikTok or Instagram or whatever is next that students are kind of falling down that rabbit hole. And I think you articulated it really well, where like the Internet is so helpful if you're on that track to do something meaningful. But if you're just sort of flailing around, right, if you're just sort of like floating around and being distracted and letting these distractions sort of take over your life, that could be really difficult, especially if you've been in this online learning environment. So like, tell us a little bit more about like, what does engagement sort of look like and sound like in an online math learning environment? Oh, wow. So I've thought about this a lot because I guess for me, it's actually inspired by offline. So it's ironic, even though what we're talking about is my work online. If you ask me, I would love to be in person, right in front. I am that kind of- Nothing beats it, right? Right? So it's funny. And now I'm going to tell you all about these other things about online, but I want to say it's all inspired by a guy who likes nothing better than to be right in front of people in the thick of things. And I can tell you more about the things I've done there as a little preview. I spent last summer going and giving talks in 40 cities all throughout the United States in park shelters, two months. And I was doing this because I wanted the in-person experience. I was going city to city to city, groups of maybe 50 to 100 people per city would come. And so I did that to get my offline, like my in-person. But that's what's making me think about the online because this is all being thought of by a person who actually really is active on the in-person, right? And so what I see you can do in-person that you cannot do easily online is in-person somehow they have to be there. (laughs) They have to be there. And presumably they have to be looking at you because there's nothing else to look at. That's what in-person has the advantage of. So you have a captive audience. But now you see, if you just take that for granted, you don't have to do anything. They're actually still there. And so now with the online, the game becomes, how do you actually not take that for granted anymore, given that they could easily have jumped off to somewhere else? This is inspired a bit. probably did. Sorry? <laughs> and probably did. And probably yeah. did. And so this is inspired by my experience teaching at Carnegie Mellon University. See, that's a university now. The difference to me between teaching at a university and teaching K-12 is in the university, if the students can just bring their laptops and their phones, standard. And by the way, if it's open, they're not taking notes. Right. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> it's game over, right? So what I mean is that many of us professors are used to teaching in classrooms and, oh my gosh, all these people have their laptops open, they're not paying attention. And furthermore, a lot of times, maybe the professors, we just think, well, we're here for the research anyway, maybe it doesn't matter so much, but I care because I like teaching. 
So then I would take it as a sport, as a game. And I have colleagues at my university who are like this too. And the game is called, can we convince you to actually pay attention? If you see what I'm saying is that I don't, even though, in, although I previously said people, they're stuck, there's nothing else to do. That's true of K-12. That is not true of university. And so I was experimenting with this, how to get people to pay attention. And that's how I came about with the first go. So one of the things that I try to do that works both offline, like in person and online is, well, it's good to be somehow engaging. And that's why I care so much about even the quality of what it looks like, what it sounds like. This is actually one reason why one of the latest things I've been doing, I was working with the people who helped to connect with you, outlier.org, simply because they were producing cinematic quality classes. And when they asked me if I wanted to be involved, I said, this sounded interesting. So one of the things I was doing was trying to find ways to bring very high production quality and feel. But there was another thing I was trying to bring that you get mostly in person, which is inspired by improvisational comedy. So I had also been working on trying to get more people in the world interested in math. And at some point, I worked with a PR agency to try to help make people more interested in math. The first thing they told me is, you're not very interesting. You need to learn how to communicate better. Go take improv comedy classes. I said, what's that? So actually, if there's one takeaway I want to make. I don't know exactly what the different backgrounds of your listeners are, but any of them who are active in education, I would give a big advice. If you take some improv comedy lessons, it just transforms the way that you teach. So after I did that, my classes changed. I used to prepare for class. So I used to prepare for class, meaning that today I'm going to show you this, this, this. Here's how I'm going to do this problem. Here's how I'm going to do that problem. Since I'm prepared, I'll be able to teach the class. There will be no problems. I won't ever be worried that I got stuck, if that makes sense. Improv comedy teaches you how to just always be stuck and get your way out of it. It's actually analogous to what I was just talking about with the learning style of doing math problems that are beyond your reach. So then suddenly the way that I started teaching all of my math classes, for example, at my university, it just turned into me saying, hey, everyone, we're going to try to do this problem today. Any ideas? I'm not going to tell you how to do it. Give me ideas. And if there's 40 people there, university classes are bigger, we'll figure it out by the hour. I'm sure of that. But then the game becomes somebody starts giving ideas and I have to not only show you what is right, I need to show you why what is wrong is wrong, if that makes sense. This is another dimension that starts adding because sometimes when you're learning, you see, okay, I guess I could do it this way, but why not that other way? The only way to find out is to stumble a while. And so this certainly made the engage, added engagingness to the kinds of teaching that I was doing. And if you're trying to do this on Zoom, which I was doing for much of the pandemic for my university, this actually helped to make people actually come to class instead of just watching the pre-recording. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is that there's two big things that you kind of use in class and one being the improvisational comedy class. And I think what you're saying is that helped you think on your feet. It helped you be dynamic. It helped you be, hey, I'm not just going to follow my script, which is kind of like when we became math teachers is that I wrote out everything I wanted to say, but we all eventually learned to put that away because it was more powerful to be a human in our classes and bring in what kids are thinking along the way. And the other thing that you were saying was you were trying to be engaging. You wanted them to kind of be active. And I think that was important. And we talked about that before, like that was your experience as a student, kind of like getting into solving problems and then working through those strategies. I'm wondering if we want to dig just a little bit deeper there, like 
I guess maybe I might have missed it, but I'm wondering like, how did that translate into online learning? And like, what were some of those elements that got them engaged? Like it was like, okay, we're going to solve this problem. It was it for your experience, Poshen, was it the fact that it was like, we're just going to like solve this problem. And the fact that that was completely different to these students experience in math class, because they were always probably like, told this is how you do this, this is how you do it, and you take notes, the fact that you've immersed them in problem solving, was that the engaging part for them? Or was there some other elements? And then how did that translate online? Yeah, I think that Hey there, math moment makers. Are you a dedicated listener? Like I'm talking, have you been listening for a couple of months, maybe even a couple of years? Well, if you haven't taken a moment to leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform, it would mean so much to us. It'll take you under one minute uh, so that you can help more educators see and experience the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. Uh, do us this huge solid. Uh, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. And uh, here is today's episode. The unpredictability of it and the feeling that you want to be part of it were definitely things that made people want to come to class. Again, I'm sort of saying this from the point of view of when we were all teaching online and in my university, we recorded everything. So students have an option called don't come to class live. And actually, many university students said that they preferred not to go to class live because they would just go and watch the recording at 2x speed. I actually think a lot of K-12 students did the same thing. Yeah. But so the point was, I was playing this game of to myself of, okay, now the game is not called get you off the laptops. The game is called, will you actually come to my class? <laughs> because otherwise it's kind of sad. There were people who were teaching and nobody came, or very few people came live. And when the people came live, it was black, empty screens. To me, that was one of the hardest things to do with the online teaching. And that's when it became, all right, guys, the class is going to be made by you. If you come, you will be steering the class. So suddenly that was one way. So I was basically explaining there was one way I was trying to do things, which was just production quality. Very important. That's one way. Another way is to say, how do we make it so that the actual being here of all these people is something that you feel like you're a part of? And so that's actually how I run this. And goodness knows with this new Omicron, some of these universities are closing for the first few weeks. So I'm actually prepared. I'm going to do this again online, possibly in another week or two. Yeah, I love that. And a lot of the pieces that are really resonating with me, you're saying it in a different way, but a lot of the elements, the idea of improv, immediately what pops into my mind, as we try to spark curiosity, we talk about withholding information, building anticipation, like when we're solving problems, getting students into getting student voice out there. And I hear these elements coming out through what you're saying. It's like, you're building this classroom culture. You're being real. You're getting students to almost, and the goal is, I think we all know that it's not going to happen for every student, but the goal is students to feel like they missed out on not being there, right? It's like, I could have been there and I could have contributed my voice. And it sounds like the way you're running the class is like, you're not going to just be there talking. You're not going to be the one up at the board who is just going to get through those five things that you had on your list from back in the day. We'll call it John and I used to do the same thing. And now it becomes much more about who's in the room. And essentially, like, I'm wondering if you see for those students who are attending, 
Are you seeing how that's helping to differentiate for the students? Like, are you able to, like, I know for us, John and I feel like since we've sort of flipped the script on how we teach a little, we now feel like we're gaining all sorts of formative assessment information, diagnostic information as well, based on what they're saying initially, but then also like formatively as they're working through the problem, it's almost like we can kind of see where students are. We can notice a name where their thinking is and where I might need to sort of facilitate during a consolidation of a lesson. Like, how is that for you? Like, how has this been a learning experience for you and how you like through this process, are you now using this information in order to even, I guess, get better at using this process with your students? Yes. So I actually feel this is very important. This is basically about getting off a track yourself, right? Basically, what we're saying here is that if you just prepared something and you want to do that one thing, you have a track. If that track doesn't exactly match what the knowledge level is of the people that are watching, it's not going to work very well. But the difficulty is, how do you know whether you should get off the track or not? That's why sometimes you ask questions to say, oh, does this make sense? Or here's a question. But for me, I find that if I just say, what do I do next? That's pretty good because <laughs> there's no danger of, for example, in a PowerPoint, just pressing the next button, if that makes sense, right? And today it's even more important because we have the, I'm sure that some of the, everyone I'm sure has seen that the post-COVID impact on people's understanding is that they might not be in the same place as the students who were their senior, one year senior, were the previous year, if that makes sense. I'm basically saying that people got set back somewhat in the learning. I bet. And something I'm hearing as well, just in that last comment, this idea of the PowerPoint next button. Like I used to rely on a very set, I used PowerPoint for years, then I used the software called Smart Notebook, but everything was so like, all right, I'm going to ask the group a question, but kids knew it's like, well, we're going to go to the next thing you want to go to anyway. So it's almost like what I heard you say earlier is almost like you're coming in not planned. You are planned. It's kind of like a contract, like, you know what you want to get out of this lesson, but that improv side of things is sort of like how John and I are doing it. Like we always say to teachers, like, don't give them like a template to solve this problem on, like, let's do this problem. And then maybe after we might give a template to help them summarize the problem, right? So it's like actually asking them a question and them feeling like my answer is where we're going to go. It's not going to be like, yes, you're right. You guessed what's next or you're wrong. Maybe somebody else can guess what's next. Yes. So I actually want to say like this particular thing of letting the students know that there's some dynamism, some liveliness. The reason why it's scary is if you don't have the experience of how to get up when you screw up, then you're afraid of looking bad. But what I got from the improv is they just taught you how you never get stuck. You just have enough exits. So I mean, one of the things you can say is, look, I don't know everything either. Let's go and figure it out. Like actually, whenever I'm teaching something and I get stuck, I say, Wow, that's really interesting. But then what is, <laughs> like, that's my line. I love that's it. That's your line, yeah. Like, like, I'm, I'm, yeah and the thing is like, this is fantastic. I'm sure you mean the same. It's like genuinely very intrigued. The moment I get across something that I don't know how to do, I'm like, whoa. And then the students all see, ah, oh, when you get stuck, it's good. But not even just that. Do you find that many times students think that you're actually lying to them? Like I, my students, they think that I do know. It's almost like they give me more respect because they're like, ah, you're just doing that. So we do the thinking. And like, sometimes I'm like, I promise I have no idea. 
what is happening right now. I am really intrigued and interested. And then students are like, oh, I think he's serious this time. They think it's just a big act, but it does definitely help you get past those roadblocks, which I totally remember when that PowerPoint, when that next button came, I even remember sometimes forgetting what the next slide was. And you're like, I can't really speak. Yeah, I can't even speak about it until it comes up on the screen. I have to look at it and go, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I remember what I was going to say. And all of that is out the window and you go with the learning where the learning takes you. And then, of course, in the end, that facilitator move is sort of like bringing it together and ensuring that students heard and got the learning that you were hoping they would get out of that learning experience. So this particular thing is actually interesting to me because it's all related to trying to make sure there's a constant flow back and forth with the students. That's one of the reasons why when I was teaching these Zoom classes with lots of empty screens, it was hard because I wasn't getting the feedback. There is something I'm happy to share. There's something I just made by today. This is what, if you saw, it was called tech support when I first joined. But there's something which I don't know if teachers will find this thing useful, especially if we have to do any remote teaching. But one of the things I just created was that in Zoom, if you're running, like, say, a large Zoom class, unfortunately, people don't really engage because unfortunately, in a large Zoom class, if people are typing, then it's a big mess on the comments on the side, if that makes sense. And so a lot of teachers say, just please don't comment unless it's the answer. And then what ends up happening is that it's dead because the kids just don't want to say nothing. On the other hand, there might be interesting moments where in a class, if I was teaching in real life, you'd see someone crack a smile. And I just would really like it if I could see a lol appear, LOL, or like something appear, if you know what I mean. So actually, I'm just going to try this here just because we happen to be on this call right now. Let me see if this actually works. So I'm going to try to join this Zoom meeting right now. Do you see that I tried to join with somebody else? Yeah, you want me to admit, yeah? Yep, that's me. Don't worry. I'm this like chat relay guy. And I'm saying this, I'm sharing this because there's a chance that this could actually be useful, especially if we end up doing any teaching pandemic advice. It's something that, that I created. Am I in? I think I'm in. Yes, show non-video participants. I'm in. Yeah, let's try this. I'm actually curious if this starts to show up on the screen. In the chat. I see a high. I see a high in the chat. 10 seconds. Do you see that something happened with mine? Oh, I see on the bottom of your screen. Yes. So the way this works is actually... Hi, everyone. So you've got the chat. If you just start typing, it it takes 10 seconds for moderation. And the reason is because I actually have a separate screen that lets me moderate all of these comments as they're coming in. But the point of it is that it makes it so that you're able to have your class or you're able to talk in a way where you can actually be seeing the comments that are coming in. And also, I mean, if there's a comment that I particularly like, I can also, I can start, right? And that makes it so that 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 comment immediately gets in. But the reason I did this is because I wanted to try to find some way to do this Zoom type teaching where people would actually be engaged. And so we are experimenting with this in some little groups. We have some little groups of about 40 middle school kids who are taking some classes with us right now. And when you have 40 middle school kids in a room with this kind of a chat box, you could imagine that it actually livens up. Yeah, I'm sure for them, it kind of reminds them of like the super chat on like YouTube live, right? It's like, if I'm going to type something, it's going to show up on the screen and everyone's going to be able to see it. Yeah, (laughs) yes, yes. And that's the point. I mean, actually, if you just type something else in, you'll see there's something else I can do to it. Of course, this works better when you have another person who's helping you. Bam, I just gave you a star. So, okay, let's put that through too. So when I said 10 seconds, it depends on whether or not the moderator guy is pressing the express lane, put it through. But there's actually some game theory in this. The system that's built is designed to block spam in the sense that if you have too many people commenting at the same time, the rules are that only one message can come through every second. 
That makes it so this doesn't go nuts. But which message will it be? It's actually a lottery where out of all the questions that came in to compete for that second, one will win randomly. But if you have more stars, you're more likely to win. And if you have said lousy stuff, you've been X'd. There's a way in this thing to kill things. That drops your points. So it's actually a lottery of you're more likely to appear in the chat if you've said reasonably good things. I'm trying to work the game theory so that even the kids, this is like for middle school kids, right? The middle school kids, what do they really want? They want to see their name on the board. Okay, that's what they want. And so how do you work into their mentality? You just make it so that the way that they get seen on the board is to say something that's like relevant or fun or encouraging. And what we found out is then suddenly the kids aren't zoned out. They're there. I like it. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. I look forward to being able to play with that if someday I could, but... Oh, yeah. Actually, I already put it online. So it's actually already online. I can show you guys the link afterwards. It's, it's just zoom.motionlow.com. Yeah, share with us and we will throw it up on the show notes page here. So anyone who is still teaching online or we got lots of listeners who fully teach online, that's their main role. We'll put that in the show notes page. But Hoshan, we want to respect your time. We've had a, a great time chatting with you about engagement, about flexibility, about taking risks as math teachers to change things and being able to kind of go with the flow. And I think you've given us some big ideas to kind of ponder over, but I'm wondering if you want to share one last big idea. If the listener at home right now is going like, oh yeah, there are so many good nuggets in here. What would you say is the biggest takeaway that they should remember when they hit the stop button on this episode? Yeah. So I think that it's really just around the student, but I think this is what most educators, why we are in the job, right? We do it for the students, right? And so to me, I always look at this from the point of view of, is it delighting a student in some way. You can delight them in your entertainment. You can delight them in the production quality of what you show. You can delight them in the surprise, the technical surprise, or you can delight them with making it so it's their own fun that they're playing with. But my point is, if you can have delight in your class, then suddenly the students are going to be looking forward to your class. I love it. That is great advice. And again, something that I'm hearing the way you approached some of these suggestions. And I'm hope that people are listening and feeling the same, that you're hearing what Poshen's saying about getting students' attention and not taking that for granted and sort of connecting it to our message that we are always sharing here on the podcast, that there is work to be done just because students have to go to school in K through 12. I know that in post-secondary, they've supposedly agreed to do this work. The reality is that there's all kinds of other distractions out there. So how do we help convince them that this time is time well spent? And I think you shared so many good ideas and I hope people at home are listening and thinking of maybe it's resonated with them in a slightly different way. I love this chat bot that you've created. We're going to share that link in the show notes for people to check out and all of your links to your website, as well as your social media. So Potion, I want to thank you again for hanging out with us here on the Making Math Moments That Matter podcast. And here's to your last few days of 2021. And hopefully we'll connect again in the new year. Wonderful. Pleasure talking to all of you. Take care. care. As always, both John and I learned so much from every interview and math mentoring moment episode here. I don't know if you caught this and read the title for today's episode, but we called it intentionally. You'll notice 
that Poshan mentioned this idea of like under preparing, of like preparing less for math class. And I hope you sort of got a little bit of that clickbait there that what he's saying, it's not that you're not preparing, because I'm going to argue that you probably have to prepare more in order to, like he had mentioned, he took improv classes in order to help prepare him for how to handle some situations when you kind of head down a path and you're not sure where to go. I loved his suggestion for saying things like, wow, that's really interesting. We talk about that on the podcast all the time. So when we say under preparing, what we mean is like almost like you're preparing to under prepare. Yeah. Exactly. It's like getting yourself. What's that Tom Shimmer quote, John, that we've mentioned on here so often, right? Yeah. Tom's got a great quote. And I think it's uh, you have to plan with precision so that you can proceed with flexibility. I love it. So it's sort of like he's kind of coming at it from a little bit of a different perspective there, but it's really, they're saying the same thing here is that we want to come in. We want students to feel like they're a part of this math community, that there's a reason that they came. And that other piece I thought was really interesting about the recording is like, students are like, well, why would I show up if I could just listen in double time, right? Like they could do it in half the time. Well, guess what? If you're scripting everything and everything is just like next on a PowerPoint or it's the next handout or it's the next slide, whatever, students are like, it doesn't matter whether I'm here or not. Like you don't see me. I am an anonymous person in this classroom environment. And something that I'm taking away from this episode, and I hope people all have a takeaway for themselves. But for me, it's really like emphasizing the importance of making the classroom experience dynamic where students don't feel like, you know, if you're teaching the same class period one and period two in the day, that it's not going to look and sound exactly the same. Sure. The learning at the end, we hope that the big idea has been addressed, but that conversation and the way that lesson flowed should have some differences. If I was to go from that class to this class, and I sort of got that today, John, what was your big takeaway today? Yeah. Big takeaway for sure is again, that quote that you talked about is preparing so much to look like you're underprepared. And I know that we've got lots of resources, lots of episodes all on this idea. I think he just, he kind of phrased it differently, the uh, kind of the way he talked about working towards getting students to solve problems first and then summarizing later. We've talked so much about that. So that was nice to hear it coming from a different way. So what are you guys doing to solidify and think about your takeaway? Sometimes I tend to listen to podcasts and then forget to do that, right? And then it's kind of like all just kind of washed away. And so take a moment right now, think about what was a big takeaway for you? What can you change in your lessons for the next time? Or maybe it's for the future, but you definitely want to kind of think about that. If you need some help, hey, send us an email or get us over on Twitter at Make Math Moments. Any of our social media accounts, we are there. We are answering those as well. Hit us up in the Facebook group, Math Homemakers K-12. Search that up if you aren't in there already. We're looking forward to hearing from you. Yeah. And if you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. And most importantly, right now, we've got a lot going on on YouTube. We have more and more subscribers each and every week. Do us a huge favor. If you found value, even if you're listening to the podcast, head over to YouTube, do us a favor, look for Make Math Moments, hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell and hit the like button because that will tell YouTube that more math educators need to see and experience this content. So that would do us a huge solid and we really appreciate it. Yeah. And show notes and links to resources from this episode, all of 
potions resources can be found over on our show notes page, as well as the transcript from this episode at makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 162. That's makemathmoments.com forward slash episode 162. Well, my math moment maker friends, until next time, I'm Kyle Pierce. And I'm John Orr. High fives for us. And hey, a big high five for you. If you are a district leader of mathematics, a math coach, a math curriculum coordinator, a superintendent and principal, getting teacher buy-in for effective math teaching practice is top of mind. And plans only go so far. You can make you know detailed plans and, and carefully designed goals with clear objectives and key results that are measurable. But that can feel like it all falls flat if we can't engage our teachers in the work. Working with teachers who do not want to change their teaching practices is one of the most frustrating and challenging parts of our job. How do I help teachers engage in effective teaching practices when they keep pushing us away? If you can't reach the tipping point in mass adoption of effective mathematics teaching strategies, then it's it's likely we won't see student improvement in mathematics. We have a free training uh, an accompanying workbook for leaders of mathematics like you. Uh, the, math, the Make Math Moments team, myself, John, and Kyle, walk you through our four-stage process uh, we use with district partners to create clear, measurable, sustainable PD action plans, but more specifically on how to also get teacher buy-in so that it drives student engagement. So step one, register for this free training, get your planning workbook, um, and then watch the training. Schedule some time on your calendar so you can watch it and go through the workbook after completing that workbook, you're going to have a clear, measurable vision, action plan for mathematics to get more teacher buy-in, but also be able to hit your goals for the 2024-2025 school year. So head on over to makemathmoments.com forward slash four stages to start this free training.